Hey everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of Mikeadelic. Got a great episode for you today. We got Mitchell Gomez on the pod, executive director at Dance Safe. And if you don't know what Dance Safe is, you will by the end of this episode. I hope you go check them out. Dance Safe is an amazing organization uh, promoting uh, harm reduction, non-biased, factual, truthful uh, education and promoting health and safety within the electronic music community. They're a a peer-based organization. They have tons of volunteers. Go check them out, dancesafe.org. Test your drugs, folks. There's a lot of stuff going around, and you don't know what it is. And uh, So these guys are doing uh, just, you know, it's an amazing service that they're providing. And, uh, and yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really like Mitchell. He's a great guy. You guys are going to love him, too. And, um, yeah. Got to take care of some business uh, before we get moving on on. And uh, that is, let's see, what do we got? Announcements, things, stuff. Well, I got Dance Safe on my website. They, uh, I decided to make like a list of resources. I, I get a lot of messages from people about where to go, what to do. Hey, can you identify this mushroom for me or whatever? Go to the Shroomery, man. Go to go to Arrowhead. Go some. There's a lot of places. And uh, not that I can't help, but uh, I, I'm crunch for time. I want to be involved in so many things. I wish I could, you know, like that movie Multiplicity where uh, I almost said Adam Keaton, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton uh, clones himself. It's a really stupid movie, but I wish I could clone myself because I just want to be involved in so many things. But having said that, I decided to make a list of resources on my website. So if you go to the website, you go to recommendations, you hit that tab, go down, resources and links, along with a number of other things. I got books in lists, I got documentaries, I got clips, talks, lectures, I got all kinds of stuff. Because uh, number one, it's kind of fun making lists, actually. I never really realized the joy of listicling. And uh, yeah, so go check that out, and uh, yeah, Dance Safe is up there, um, and all of a uh, bunch of resources. And if you see anything that should be added there, let me know, because I'm always down to add more resources and links to help people point people in the right direction. All right, so uh, I also have a, a new section on the website called Flow Sessions. It's kind of in construction, but the point of it is, like I said, I'm involved in a lot of things, and I'm always kind of out and doing many things, and people are always sending me books, and they want to be on the podcast, and this and that, and I, I love it all. I, I love it all. And I love when you guys send me messages. Sometimes some of the messages you send require a longer, more thoughtful response. And in the past, I think I was able to kind of carve out a little bit more time. I wasn't as busy. But moving forward, I decided what if I offered something, you know, that that could really help people in the way that I think could help people. And that that way is by talking, by by just free-flowing talking, having a one-on-one mind jam with Mike Adelic himself. And um, I'm calling it flow sessions. And the reason why I'm calling it that is because when I when I do the solo cast, I get into a flow state. When I do, I haven't done a solo cast in a while and I really, I'm like itching to get on one. So the next one is going to be epic. I guarantee it. I'm just building up. It's like, you know, it's like a dam just like building and building uh, and it's about to burst. So I'm, I'm ready to unload some mind flow and surf the cosmic waves of my neurons into your ear holes pretty soon. And uh, 
so I want to I want to do that for you guys. I want to do that for anybody that just wants to, you know, so many times in our lives we find ourselves not being able to really express ourselves fear of being judged or calling stupid or being stupid or, you know, like maybe we don't have the time or whatever the reason is, but getting into a state of flow, trusting your thoughts and trusting what you're saying to really just let it all out, you know, let the conversation go where it goes. So these are going to be really long stretches of time, uh, like, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours, whatever it is. And I'll, and I'll work it on like a sliding scale pretty much. So I haven't set it up, but if you're interested, just go to the contact form on my website, on my website, contact me. I'm still in the process of setting all this up. That being said, if you need more of a professional to take care of you and, and, uh, give you, some better maybe coaching advice. Uh, my partner Jenna uh, is is I mean I always tell people you know she's she's a life coach and since we got together I was sort of like patient zero you know I was I was her first unofficial real client. If she could help me, if she could improve my life, I guarantee she can help anybody. So her website is I Venture Beyond, and uh, she specializes in transitions. Um, and I really like what she's doing because she's really doing something that came from her personal experience. She worked in the corporate world for seven years and as a, as a corporate coach, she's super smart and talented. And then we met at an ayahuasca center and then she started teaching yoga and then going on hi- offering hikes and, uh, you know, dieting plant medicines. And so she's got a, a lot to offer. So if you find yourself stuck, if you find yourself like you might be wanting to have a, a transition in your life, um, Contact her. Go to iVentureBeyond.com. Me partner, Jenna Sezianal Basilicato. Uh, I feel like there should be like a th- the third after that in a British accent. Um, what else? What else? I want to try. I just I want to speed this up because uh, you know it, we want to get to the we want to get to the podcast. But uh, I'll be presenting at the Denver Psychedelic. Club, the Psychedelic Club of Denver, if you will, uh, at Hooked on Colfax, talking about Daniel Pinchbeck's book, How Soon Is Now. Uh, some of you might remember I had Daniel on the podcast, I don't know, episode 30 or 35, something like that. I just saw he has a new book coming out called uh, When Plants Dream with uh, Sophia Rocklin. I'm not sure if I pronounced her name right. It's kind of one of those things where uh, I've... I've never heard it before, but it looks like that's what it is. Anyway, uh, going to be presenting that book. I think it's an important book. I don't totally agree with everything in the book, but I'm going to give my take on it and talk about how uh, he's connecting a lot of dots. And I love dot connecting and dot connectors. Uh, so yeah, and then I was just on a panel for this Psychedelica series by Gaia, hosted at uh, the Alamo Draft House on Sloan's Lake, put on by Good Cinema and hosted by Megan from Vinyasa Productions and Medicinal Mindfulness. So go check out those things as well. Uh, Jenna will be on the next panel uh, about ayahuasca. So that's coming up. Uh, what else? What else? Yeah, if you like the show, you know what to do. Just tell people about it. Um, share it. You know, um, Subscribe. That helps. And if you want to go a step further, you can leave a five-star rating and review or just a five-star rating. Just click those five stars on Apple Podcasts. That really, really helps because it's uh, 
the largest podcast directory, the most popular one, and it lets everybody know, hey, people like this show. Like, this is good. Uh, so do that. If you don't like the show, message me. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me I'm an idiot, I'm fat, you know, whatever. Just, just I can handle it, man. You know, give me the brutal, honest truth. I, I only want that. And I try to give that to you guys on the show all the time. So uh, then if you want to go even further in your support, this is an independent show, competing with a lot of shows with big money and resources and power and here I am sitting in my living room with a Shipibo tapestry on a fold-out beer pong table with some foam crates hanging above my head. So <laughs> please uh, send a couple of Federal Reserve notes over to Mr. Mike Adelic here at uh, patreon.com slash Mike Brank. That's M-I-K-E-B-R-A-N-C. If you can, you get all kinds of cool rewards, stickers, buttons, magnets, T-shirts, and you get to join the Inner Sanctum WhatsApp, WhatsApp chat group where People from all around the world are talking, connecting, sharing trip reports, telling stories, getting vulnerable, real, raw, all the good things I like. Shout out to everybody in that group. I love each and every single one of you. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. So yeah, my website, mikebrank.com. Go there. Check out all that stuff I mentioned. Transitional coaching by my partner, Jenna. I venture beyond. And um, Let's get started with the show, folks. This is a good one. This is a real good one. I, uh, I'm really, ha- I'm really happy to have Mitchell on and to know him, and I hope to continue to keep in contact with him, chat with him, hang out with him, and have him back on the show. So, without further ado, the executive director at Dance Safe, Mitchell Gomez. Psychedelics are illegal not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Information is power, but we have to seize seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming over. I appreciate it. This yeah, is uh, it not quite yet, you know, the Joe Rogan level studio here. I don't have like, you know, uh, scientists shooting crossbows or anything. And yeah, no flamethrowers <laughs> anywhere. Right? No flamethrowers. Yeah, yeah. Nothing like that. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, we had a pretty interesting talk over there before. And so I, every time I, I, I'm talking with someone who's interesting... It's always like, wait, 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 let's save it for the podcast. But obviously we can cover some of that stuff uh, that we were talking about again. But I should start off by just saying, like, I really appreciated what you said. when I, that was, I think the first time I heard you speak at Good Cinema when I was there. And I just really connected with what you were saying, what you were talking about, uh, drug war, you know, uh, cognitive liberty and those sorts of things. And, uh, of course, Dance Safe um, is, like, doing the best thing that anybody could possibly do and maybe i could let you explain what that is yeah sure 
Uh, so a little bit of background. Uh, DanceSafe was started in the late 90s uh, in the West Coast rave scene. Uh, basically focused very, very uh, tightly on the issue of MDMA misrepresentation. So there were pills going around that uh, DanceSafe's founder knew were not MDMA. And so he realized there was ways that you could chemically test for these. Um, the government of, I believe, either Belgium or the Netherlands had started doing pill testing. Uh, and his original plan was basically to create a sort of media stink around drug checking and hopefully legalize the service. So the plan was basically to get arrested doing drug testing and then to use that arrest as a way to like legalize the, the service. Uh, despite his best efforts and despite mine, nobody's ever managed to get arrested doing drug checking. Law enforcement generally is very supportive of harm reduction now. They understand harm reduction. Uh, and DanceSafe's mission has really expanded to be sort of a larger holistic harm reduction outreach organization. So we do a lot of things now that are not involving drugs at all. Uh, you know, we give out hundreds of thousands of condoms every year. Um, my basement right now is actually solid condoms. It's like <laughs> walls of condoms. Um, we give out free water, non-biased drug information, electrolytes, uh, earplugs, you know, all sorts of harm reduction things that are needed within the scene. Uh, but the core of our mission really still is about, uh, oh, consent education. That's become a bigger and bigger piece every year. Uh, but really the core of the mission is about drug misrepresentation. It's about mitigating the harms, uh, not just of substance use, but harms that are directly created by government policy. Uh, and that's actually the reason that I'm so interested in, uh, in policy change, in ending prohibition, in pushing these ideas of cognitive liberty, because really most of what we do is not mitigating risks of drugs. It's mitigating risks of drug prohibition. Uh, misrepresentation kills a lot of people with the fentanyl crisis. Now, uh, it actually, I, I'm pretty comfortable at this point saying that drug misrepresentation now kills more people than drugs. It's more than the, you know, people taking a drug they thought was the drug they were taking and dying is now the minority of drug deaths. Right. Um, because we now have more fentanyl deaths than heroin deaths. And most users are not intentionally using fentanyl. They're attempting to either use heroin. And now more and more frequently, we're seeing we're seeing fentanyl show up in cocaine, in methamphetamine, in non opioid drugs, uh, lots and lots and lots of fake uh opioid pharmaceuticals out there are actually just fentanyl, often very unevenly pressed. Uh, and so, yeah, what we're talking about is the exact equivalent of the people in the 1930s who died drinking black market alcohol and then, uh, you know, either died or went blind from methanol poisoning. Um, it's not just a parallel situation. It's the identical situation. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, that's really what we're doing is trying to end these misrepresentation and adulteration deaths that are created by our decision to outlaw these drugs. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, the decision to outlaw these drugs and then obviously people are going to do what people do and then people that want to help people and create change do what you do. And yeah. it's like, you know, if the, we didn't have this prohibition, you know, maybe you'd be more integrated into the mainstream model, which would be great. You know, I mean, I could imagine like if people were going to McDonald's and getting burgers that they thought were hamburgers, but they wound up being like rat poison. I mean, that would be a huge level right. of concern, although that is above ground and I have some kind of black market McDonald's sling. And right. Well, I mean, that's sort of the crux of the issue, right, is that the solution to this is uh, the creation of legal regulated markets. And then what we in terms of what we do, we can just focus on education. Uh, you know, I often say that realistically, what Dan most of what DanceSafe does should be provided by county health departments. Right? You should be able to take your drugs to a county health department. They should be able to run them through not just reagent testing, but laboratory, you know, GCMS or FTIR testing, uh, tell you what they are and then hand them back to you. Yeah. Or in an even better world, just 
go to the drugstore, right, and buy. Uh, Can you explain what that is? Reagent. Yeah, and yeah, of course. The laboratory. Yeah, um, yeah. So reagent testing is primarily what Dansafe does. Uh, it's small chemical droppers. You basically scrape a tiny sample off of whatever it is you're planning on consuming. Uh, make several little piles out of those scrapings and then test each pile with a different reagent test. Uh, those reagents change color based on the primary uh, composition of the substance you're testing. And then you compare them to a chart of known reactions uh, and you can get a pretty good idea of what's in that sample. Uh, broadly reagent testing is what you would call presumptive identification. So you can say this sample for sure does not contain mostly MDMA. And you can say this sample almost certainly contains an MDMA-like substance, but you can't be 100% sure that it's MDMA. There's always a statistical risk that some new sample, some new drug has been developed that right. matches the some analog. Right, right. Yeah. Um, it's unlikely, but not impossible. And sometimes we have to develop new reagents to mitigate that. So our old MDMA test, uh, there was a drug called 6-APB that was too similar on our existing MDMA test. And so we had to develop new reagents to, to figure out if something was MDMA or 6-APB. Uh, GCMS and FTIR, so gas chromatography mass spec or Fourier transformer infrared spec, uh, those are positive identification. If the machine says that it's MDMA, it's MDMA. There's no way to misrepresent these machines. There's no way to trick them. You can't add something to the drug that's going to make the GCMS think that it's MDMA. Right. Um, so from like a legal context, uh, reagent testing would be good enough for the police to arrest you, but they would never go to trial without sending it to a state crime lab and getting GCMS done. Right. Um, because an attorney would come in and, and destroy reagent testing, right? They'd be like, oh, you don't even really know what these things are. Um, yeah. But it's good for people because it's affordable. Right. Uh, th these other methods are require a lot of resources and, and money. Right, right. right. Uh, yeah. I mean, a, a base level FTIR is roughly 40 grand. A GCMS is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of twice that. Um, the idea that like an end user is going to purchase one of these is insane. Yeah. Um, uh, Dansafe is currently working on getting an FTIR. Wait, you didn't see my lab over yeah, there? yeah yeah <laughs> um i mean there probably are some in private ownership out there but i don't know those folks right right um, if any of those folks are listening please reach out uh but yeah we're uh we're fundraising for an ftir we do have some money set aside we're going to be doing a big fundraising push next year to purchase an ftir uh there's a few different machines we're looking at and we're basically just waiting to hear back from overseas partners who have these machines to see which ones they're liking best um because in a lot of places the governments are funding drug checking services um columbia is actually getting ready to potentially institute a rule that any party of over like 1500 people would be required to have drug checking harm reduction services on site um france the uk uh all over europe there's people who are getting major funding to do drug checking and so they're yeah. buying these portugal machines. right I portugal mean, they... spain yeah, yeah a lot yeah. of places um and so we're lucky we get to hear feedback on these machines without having to spend a hundred thousand dollars to test the various machines great yeah um but yeah so Reagent testing is is certainly better than not reagent testing, right? If you're going to consume a substance, it's absolutely better to to test it than to not test it. Um, but laboratory analysis is also undeniably better than reagent testing. Um, although reagents are still used for something. So for FTIR, for instance, uh, because the amount of LSD on a piece of blotter paper is so small compared to the weight of the paper, the FTIR generally just reads the paper. So even people who have these FTIR machines are still using the Ehrlich's reagent to test LSD. And so the reagents are always going to have a place, um, particularly because, like you said, they're cheap and easy to deploy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's very easy to put, you know, 100 reagent 
kits in the hands of 100 people at a party, tell them to go test for their friends, and vastly, vastly, vastly reduce the number of adverse medical incidents or hospital transports. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, it helped me. I thought I was getting LSD, and it was uh, N-bomb. And, uh, uh, and, yeah. and what is it, N-M-O-B? Uh, well, well, there's, there's a bunch. Yeah. So there's 2,5-I-N-B-O-M-E. Yeah, that's the, that's yeah, the, that one. the most common. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that drug has killed something like 60 people that we know of yeah. um, in what we would call totally normal doses, right? People taking one piece of blotter paper right. and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and considering it's being sold as LSD, which is a drug that is literally non-toxic in mm-hmm. the medical sense, there's no known fatal dose of LSD, um, to sell a drug that has uh, you know that many deaths at very small doses as a drug that doesn't physiologically kill people is really horrific. I mean, that's a really horrible thing that that people are doing. Yeah. Um, it just has huge profit margins, uh, and in a world where you know one or two percent of people are are incapable of experiencing empathy, uh, huge profit margins are going to tempt some people to behave in in very unscrupulous ways. Yeah, but a regulated market can protect against that. Right. I mean, that's the the entire point of regulation. Yeah, Yeah, I I often uh, joke that the greatest trick prohibitionists have ever pulled is calling prohibition drug control, right? Because what prohibition really is, is the abdication of drug control to criminal black markets. It gives all of the control to the people who are selling drugs in black markets. Uh, Drug control is when you go to a store and buy a beer that's 3.8%, you know with 100% certainty that it's 3.8% alcohol. It's gone through multiple levels of government regulation. These people have licenses that can be pulled if they misrepresent things. Right. Um, yeah, and it's, it's really difficult to get a liquor license. Too. Really difficult. Yeah. And I would imagine an MDMA and LSD license will be even more difficult to right. get when we eventually have legal regulated markets. Um, and so, yeah, what you've really done is given up all the control. And the fact that they call it drug control is really quite clever. Mm. Um because it makes people really, oh, I mean, how could we right. not want Orwellian, drug control, yeah. right? How could we not want drug control? How could we not want to do this? Right. And it's like, no, drug control is legalization. That's drug control. Right. Uh, not this just sort of pretending that you're going to stop drug use and driving it all into the black markets. Um, yeah, the government's pretty genius when it comes to their marketing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Propaganda. Yeah, certainly the government, it's a, a, a Darwinian evolution of government systems, right? Like the governments that survived uh, revolutions have gotten very good at at quelling revolutions. And in this country, one of the primary ways that governments maintain this sort of societal control is through language and through, you know, all of these anti-drug commercials have been shown over and over and over and over and over again to not reduce rates of drug use, right? All of these anti-marijuana commercials in the 1980s didn't change the rate of drug use at all. What they do is create a framework for talking about drugs. They create a societal framework for what is the sort of boundaries of acceptable discussion around substance use. Um, and at that, they're very good, right? Uh, you know, this idea that, you know, the the sort of famous, uh, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs really did create a way that even drug users think about drugs, right? Even drug users, you hear them say things like, oh, my friend like fried his brain. Right. It's like, that's, that's literally not what's happening with drugs. That's literally not what they're doing, but it's created the language. It's created the framework that we use to talk about it. Yeah. Just the repetition of it. Yeah. And, and just being exposed to that repetition over and over, it conditions you, primes you to think in that, in that framework. Right. Right. Um, Advertising and government propaganda share a lot of things, but the primary thing they share is that they work. Yeah. Right. There's a reason right. that we spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on advertising. Yeah. Probably the, trillions. The war on drugs like, is like very effective, so to speak, for them, sure. not for sure. humanity. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, 
if you look at the drug war from a is it reducing drug deaths perspective, the answer is clearly no. I mean, yeah. we have a higher percentage of our population dying now from opioids than we did when you could buy heroin at the grocery store. Right. Um, I mean, it was literally sold through the Sears catalog. You didn't even have to go to the store. You just sent off a check with, you know, I need three pairs of pants, uh, two shirts. Uh, I need a new hoe for the garden uh, and some heroin. And they would like, you know, mail you those five things. Yeah. And more people die now from opioids than when that was the way they were sold. Right. Um, and so clearly it doesn't work from that perspective. But for from the perspective of uh, increasing police power, increasing the surveillance state, eroding civil liberties, yeah. um, allowing them to seize assets, civil asset forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture yeah. the incarceration um, rates like we were talking right, right. about before, right, right, uh, incarceration rates, private prison right. proceeds, big money, a lot of money. I mean, trillions of dollars. Yeah. Right. And so it's very effective for a very small number of people who are getting very, very, very very rich right um who happen to have all the control who happen to have all the control right, right. uh happen uh <laughs> and so uh yeah i mean that's in my mind that's really what the drug war is about because prohibitionists are a lot of things but they're not stupid right um you can look at the outcomes of the drug war and you can look at the money we're spending and it's very difficult to come to any conclusion other than the one that this is not about stopping drug use how do we communicate to this to people that actually care not these evil people at the top but how do we push things forward uh, to try and make change because like you said it's it's not like it's like oh these knuckleheads just don't know they're not educated oh right. if they can only make the right decisions they know yeah. and it's pretty malevolent right yeah i you know i'm not sure if malevolence necessarily the term i would use i would okay. say incredibly greedy okay sure um these are people who care more about money than human lives okay, i mean yeah. that's very clear yeah uh I guess that's evil. I don't know. I, I I think as soon as you start describing other people as evil, you start getting into patterns of thinking about them that just aren't helpful. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's an easy answer to that question. I really don't. I mean, we're talking about taking trillions of dollars away from people with a lot of power. Um, the last time we did something like that was literally the Civil War, right? It was taking away uh, slaves weren't just people who were being incarcerated. They were the primary economic asset of the South. The slaves that we freed were literally worth more than anything else the South had. Um, and we're talking about another sort of similar dynamic. We're talking about pulling trillions of dollars away from people who have a lot of money, a lot of power, and a lot of guns. Um, and so I don't know if there's an easy solution here. Um, but really the thing that ended alcohol prohibition was the depression. You know, we simply couldn't afford as a society to continue the model that existed. And that might sort of be the answer. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the government this quarter is borrowing the second largest number they've ever borrowed. Um, you know, all of the economic metrics look really good right now, but they're all being propped up by super low interest rates and really heavy borrowing on the, on the side of the government. Right. Um, if you take away the ability for the government to do that, our, our, all of our economic metrics look pretty terrible right yeah, now. Yeah, it's a house of cards. Right. And, and one that's really predicated on the ability to borrow trillions of dollars at basically 0% interest. Um, and that is not a sustainable system. And so at some point we're going to be talking about a massive correction and that might provide us an opportunity to really have a conversation about what our prison system looks like. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I think if we look at history, that's pretty much the way it goes, right? Wait right. for catastrophe, wait till it blows up in your face until right. people um, get motivated and do something. Yeah. And it's, it's super unfortunate that that's the dynamic. And I mean, that's the dynamic with most uh, major social change is that it does require a bit of chaos in order to move the needle. Uh, 
And that's just sort of the reality of humanity. As long as it's not affecting a person personally, it's really easy to ignore all sorts of things. It's really easy to ignore the fact that we have a higher percentage of our population in prison than any society in the history of the world. Yeah. Yeah. We call ourselves the freest country on the planet. Right, right. Freest country on the planet, but we have more people in boxes than, in, than the Soviets had in the gulags. I mean, sure. literally, Jeez, yeah. um, both in absolute numbers and as a percentage of population. But we don't see it really. It's not like in our face on sure. a daily basis for most by design. people. Right. By right. design. Right. Yeah. It's, it's very, very, very well concealed mm. um and you know there's also a lot of issues of of uh you know uh racial disparity and 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 economic disparity that drives these things you know when it was poor people of color using heroin it was a scourge it was a plague and now that it's like you know more middle class white kids dying of heroin suddenly it's a disease it's a pandemic right, right. the language changes depending on who is right. being affected Setting by that these, framework right? again yeah um and weirdly uh this also gives us opportunities to have conversations about what substance use and how we should deal with it and how we should, you know, sort of, uh, mitigate these deaths. Uh, every single person in this country who dies from taking fentanyl when they thought they were taking heroin died because heroin is illegal. And the more we can push that messaging, the more we can educate people about the fact that this is not the only model. I mean, Switzerland literally gives free heroin to heroin addicts and those heroin addicts generally don't die. Like as a general, on a population level, there have been individual, I think there's a, a small, small, small number of individuals who passed away in the, in the program. On a population level, it's like basically zero. Nobody yeah. dies. Um, heroin is dangerous intrinsically, but it's so much more dangerous under black markets because right. you don't know the dose. You don't know what you're taking. People are afraid to call 911. People are using a loan because the drug is so heavily stigmatized. Yeah. And when it's not illegal, when their heroin was synthesized by Bayer Pharmaceutical and paid for by the government and given to them, they can literally just tell somebody, hey, I'm going to use this heroin. I need you to be here while I'm using it. Right. And there's no fear of like, oh, this person now might get charged with a homicide, right? If your friend ODs in your living room, you could end up being charged with murder, even if you didn't buy the drugs, even if you didn't give them the drugs, even. And so like people are terrified to provide social support for right. opiate use. Yeah. And you were talking about the 30s probe, alcohol prohibition yeah. and the increase in violent criminal gangs, you know, because of these black markets. So violence increased, these, these sure. gangs increased. So that's another part of the equation that's not really directly uh, about the substance itself, but right. about the surrounding aspect of the market that it creates. Right. Uh, so I saw it worked out once that on a purely material resource basis, it's more expensive to produce refined sugar than it is to produce heroin, yeah. right? Because you have to, f sugar plants are, are very agriculturally intensive, right? They create a lot of pollution. You have to pump a lot of water in. They, they're really an intensive thing to grow. Uh, uh, poppies, in most parts of the world, you can just plant the, the poppies and ignore them and they grow totally fine, right? right yeah. And so the only reason sugar is cheap is that we subsidize it, right? We don't charge the sugar producers for the externalities of their agriculture. We don't charge them for the pollution they create. And so, and we pay, we give them cheaper water and we give them direct subsidies. So the only reason sugar is cheap is that we subsidize it. And the only reason that heroin's expensive is that we prohibit it. Every person who moves that substance from point A to point B needs to be paid for the risk they have taken, right? The people who are, are taking the raw um, opium and cooking it into heroin need to get paid a lot of money for that process because it's really risky. Um, and so if you just like let the free market sort of be the free market, I actually think heroin would, would probably be cheaper than sugar. I, I really do believe that. Um, 
And like, that's, that's insane that we've created trillions of dollars of black market profit um, from a drug that we could just literally for less money, we could just give the heroin out for free. And people hate that idea, right? They're like, Oh, I don't want my tax money being used to give out drugs. And it's like, well, your tax money is already being used to deal with drug use. And we're talking about a net savings of like hundreds of trillions of dollars globally by just giving opioid dependent users. I mean, we're trying to move away from that addict language. It's so easy to slip into that, but, um, people who are dependent on, on opioid use, it's literally cheaper just to give them free heroin. So like, why are we wasting tax money? Like we're the fiscal conservative ones, the ones who want to give out free heroin. That's the fiscally conservative position. And then you get rid of all the tertiary crime, right? People are constantly saying, Oh, if we legalize heroin, everyone's going to be robbing everyone to pay for their habit. It's like, no, like it's only expensive because it's illegal. Like the only reason this happens is because you've chosen to create an artificial scarcity. You've chosen to create this situation. And I'm not somebody who is a personal fan of, of opioids. I I've personally had very, very close friends pass away from opioid use. And I mean, I've seen the damage that opioid use can do. I don't want to minimize those very real things. But so many of the things that we attribute to opioid use are because of opioid prohibition. In, I would say the vast majority. And also, even according to the DEA, something like like 74% of people who try heroin never develop the DSM criteria for problematic use, mm-hmm. which means three-fourths of all the heroin users out there are just by the DEA's own statistics, recreational heroin users. Mm-hmm. We never talk about it like that. We never talk about those users because right. they're they're out of the the, the 15% are, are the 15% that we really see. Right. Um, and so yeah. we just don't And talk. you see it in movies. You see it in movies. Things too, right. right? Everyone's always strung out, laying on the floor. Right. Big problems. Right, right. The the attorney who is opioid dependent and needs to use uh, a little bit of heroin in the morning and a little bit at night to like get through the day, but other than that, has his life together. Is it you know? You don't see those users. You don't ever see them. Um, even other substance users don't know that their friends are that user because. People who will share, you know, giant lines of cocaine and ketamine with complete strangers in the middle of a cow field somewhere will never talk about the fact that they're going to take an oxy to go to sleep that night, right? They'll never talk with the, even their closest friends about the fact that they're using opioids, whereas they're just like, you know, they'll pour white powder on a table for strangers um, because it's such a heavily stigmatized drug. Yeah. Uh, and that's just the reality is that that's another effect of prohibition, the creation of this stigma makes the use more dangerous, both right. for the user and for society. It's not just about the user. Even if you never want to use these drugs, your entire civilization is being made more dangerous through drug prohibition. Yeah. Talk about a trickle down effect. Yeah. Right. Well, and you, we were talking about people being greedy and that's why that this is going on, but there's also a level of like fundamentalism too, right? Sure. Because, you know, we're talking about giving people drugs and that I'm all for that. I think that's a smart, safe thing to do, but obviously you've heard a lot of the arguments against that. Sure. Right. So what what are people typically saying? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the really important things to remember about the drug war and about the United States in particular is that the people who founded this country, there were several different sort of schools of, of thought that came into the founding of this country. There were uh, the the Native American sort of uh, school of self-governance was actually really important. The Iroquois Confederacy yeah, oh, was yeah. a really foundational part of our government. Yeah. Uh, there were the uh, 
Hispanic Catholic settlers coming in, you know, to what is now Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. But the government systems were really created by the two main schools of thought were people who were from the Enlightenment, people who were, uh, you know, rationalists, generally called themselves deists. But if you read their private writings, were very clearly atheists. Um, and then Puritans, mm-hmm. right? And so it's important to remember that there was an actual Puritan sort of school of thought within this country that's never really died out. There are, and prohibition is really at its heart a Puritanist policy, right? right. It's this idea that people who are enjoying something should be punished. Right. right? You should be punished if you're You should be working it. and take pride in right. your work. Right. Um, yeah. And these are the people who don't want to give out condoms in high schools because if kids just don't have condoms, clearly they won't have sex. Right. Right. They want to do abstinence-only education. They want to close down Planned Parenthood. They want to, you know, uh, and just say no for about drugs, right? And those are all sort of the same underlying attitude. It's this idea that if something is enjoyable, there should, at a bare minimum, there should be risk to that enjoyment or maybe outright punishment. Maybe we should punish you if you enjoy things. Yeah. Um, and it's a, a really, really, really strange dynamic if you weren't raised in it. And I wasn't. I wasn't raised in a sort of, you know, fundamentalist Christian home. I was raised by very liberal Jewish parents. And so I, I don't have the sort of upbringing that lets me sort of understand that in my gut. Um, but I'm sure a lot of your listeners were, and they do understand that in their gut. Yeah. And even if you think you fully escaped from your upbringing, it's really, really hard to escape that. And you'll hear it from substance users all the time, right? Oh, I support drug checking, but like we can't have safe injection facilities. Like we right. can't, we can't just like use taxpayer money to fund where people are going to shoot up their drugs. Yeah. It's like test kits and, and safe injection facilities are on a continuum of mitigating risks of substance use. They're not separate things. They're part of the same model for addressing substance use. And saying that you want the things that will make your drug use safer, but you want to ban the things that will make other people's drug use safer is like kind of messed up. Like it's not a great way to think about drugs, but it's a really, really common dynamic among substance users. Uh, Dennis McKenna coined the term pharmacochauvinism. So it's this idea that like my drugs are fine, but your drugs are evil and dirty and shouldn't be allowed. (laughs) Um, And then the term that I've tried to push as the opposite of that uh, is molecular agnosticism, Mm. right? We just accept that molecules are molecules. They're not intrinsically good or bad. They're just molecules. They exist in nature and they exist in labs and they're out there. What matters is how people as individuals and societies integrate those substances, right? And if people are using drugs, uh, even drugs that have potential serious problems, I don't care. I really don't. I fundamentally don't judge substance use. What I care about are deaths, hospitalizations, uh, people who are having to go out and rob to support their their dependent, you know, their dependency use. Uh, you know, people who are getting sold drugs that aren't what they claim they are and they, right, yeah. they die. Those are the things I care about. And so a lot of times the pushback you really get from this idea of legalizing drugs is, well, aren't more people going to use drugs? And I think the answer is yes. I, I think it's a small increase. I think it's a much smaller increase than most people think it would be. For the most part, I think everyone who really wants to use cocaine can get cocaine today. Right. For the most part, everyone who wants to use heroin can go out and get their heroin. Right. And so I really don't think there would be this. People have this perception that there would this just be this explosion of heroin use yeah. if we legalized heroin. Oh, it's like, yeah. you know what? Like, 
there could be a heroin store right next door to my house and it would not change the amount of heroin I use at all, which right. is zero. Yeah. That's the amount I use. That's the amount I want to use. Right. You know, people say, oh, aren't people just going to use as much heroin as they want? And it's like, I'm already using as much heroin as I want. Zero. That's yeah. how much I want. <laughs> I think that was the perception with cannabis too. Mo- moving right. from New York to here, people are like, oh, what are you just going to, you're just smoking all the time, just getting high. Is that why you're moving? They're like, look, there's a cannabis shop right across the street. I go there maybe like once every three weeks right. to a month, get right. a couple things. It's not increasing. And I remember this great moment from the 2012 uh, presidential debates, or maybe it was 2008, I forget, Ron Paul in South Carolina was talking about heroin. And he's like, so, uh, you know, and obviously they frame the question this way, uh, Chris Wallace or whoever. So you're saying that you're in favor of legalizing heroin, Mr. Paul? And he's like, look, he's like, how many people here would do- shoot heroin? He's like, we don't need the government to tell us what to do and what not to do. He's like, you know, and, right. and, and everyone started applauding. He's like, oh, Oh, I never thought heroin would get an applause here. It's like, no, freedom got an applause. Right, right. Liberty got an applause, right. you know? And, and that's really what it comes down to is fundamentally people either believe that each of us has the right to live our lives that we want to as long as we're not hurting others or you don't believe that. And a lot of people think they believe that until you really push them on certain issues. A lot of people will claim, oh, I want to let people live their lives however they want. And then you start talking about, right, we always default to heroin. We probably shouldn't. But uh, Want to talk about mushrooms? Yeah, let's talk about mushrooms. Because, yeah. because it, working at the, uh, the decriminalization effort here, you know, I even talking with people who use drugs were like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like shrooms, but I don't think everybody, I don't think it should be legal. I don't think people, because then you're going to have people taking it. They're going to be driving. It's going to be crazy. People are going to be tripping all over. I'm right. like, Right. Really? So okay. driving on driving on <laughs> mushrooms is, is exactly as illegal now as it was before we decriminalized mushrooms in Denver, right? It did not change a, a, a single thing about driving on mushrooms. Right. Um, I don't think... I mean, yeah. Do, do people occasionally drive on psychedelics when they probably shouldn't? Yeah, I think that happens. Um, I don't think it happens any more under legalization than it would not under legalization. Um, I think it probably actually happens less, right? Because you can you can educate people about these things. You can uh, teach them about how, you know, what safer use looks like. Uh, you can teach them how to trip sit their friends so that when their friends are having a difficult experience, they don't feel the need to like, oh, we need to go to a hospital. Like We need to go seek medical help. Right. And it's like the reality is with if your mushrooms were actually mushrooms, if they were properly identified, you know, psilocybe mushrooms, your stomach is not physically large enough to eat a like physiologically problematic dose. Right. You can't eat enough mushrooms to physically hurt yourself. Like your stomach yeah, 15, literally doesn't fit thousand that. grams. <laughs> right. Like yeah. you just can't do it. Right. Um, even extracts. It would be, you could do pure psilocybin extract powder, and it would be very very difficult to physically get enough of that powder into your system to hurt yourself um, physiologically. And so as long as you can teach people about mitigating the tertiary risks, right? If you think you can fly, try taking off from the ground. Right. Right. Yes. You never see ducks catching elevators yeah. so like all right you think you can fly buddy like i'm very excited to see this yeah. you're not getting on the roof right right no duck has to get on the roof so let's see it let's see you fly um you know teaching people about the dangers of driving and thankfully technology is also mitigating some of this right it used to be that getting from a to b without a vehicle meant calling a taxi and it was like a whole thing yeah it's now, so easy now you could just eat a bag of mushrooms get in your tesla set it on auto drive and- <laughs> right so maybe don't do that yet <laughs> no, i don't think self-driving kidding. cars is quite legal yet but we're getting <laughs> right. there but yeah, certainly yeah. you know calling an Uber is easy. Uh, And believe me, every Uber driver who's ever picked anyone up from outside of a rave at three in the morning knows that you don't have to be sober to get in an Uber. Uh, And so like, yeah, we've really technologically are moving in the direction of a society that is going to be able to integrate these things better. But really, this cannot be an individual project. Um, The ability to properly integrate psychedelics into an individual person's life 
uh, is something that literally millions of people have figured out. That's not the difficult part. Um, that's something that actually, as a species, we're quite good at. Um, you know, if you go to the NSA or the Peyote Way Church, you'll see very young children eating peyote. These children have been tested as adults for, uh, you know, neurological you know, all, all sorts of neurological and cognition tests. And there's no sign at all that even among young children using peyote causes any sort of neurological or, or cognitive issues. Um, the opposite, actually, these people generally are, are a little better integrated mm -hmm. uh, psychologically. And so what we really need to talk about is societal integration of these substances, right? We need to talk about the fact that we are locking people up for decades or lifetimes for substances that don't have a known fatal dose. And on the same time, we're funding alcohol, right? As a society, we, we actually, we support alcohol by right. lower tax rates for businesses, for lower tax rates for agriculture, where they're growing grain to produce beer. Like why is a person who's growing a drug that kills so many people being funded by my tax dollars? Yeah. Why is that happening? Yeah, there you go. There's where That's where your tax dollars are that's going. That's where my yeah. tax dollars are going, is they're funding the agriculture that grows the barley to make the beer that kills far more people every day than LSD has killed right. since it was invented. What is it? I think like 40,000, I think, alcohol-related deaths a year or something like that? 40 or 50, yeah. right. So an, uh, let's ballpark that as a 9-11 every, what, 13, 14 Jesus days. Jesus Christ, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And so we're talking about big numbers, right? right? Big numbers of deaths being funded by our tax dollars. Um, and the reality is by legalizing psychedelics, we can almost certainly reduce the amount of alcohol use in our society. Oh, definitely. My alcohol uh, use has gone way, way down. Right. And that's a really common uh, anecdotal story and also something that in the 1960s was studied quite extensively. Oh, right. Yeah. Bill Wilson, right? Sure. I actually have a first edition. So oh, if you get yeah. the very first edition, the very first printing of the Alcoholics Anonymous guide, it talks about his own LSD use. And oh, then it was wow. pulled out by the second printing. Oh, why'd they pull so, it out? Because the perception against LSD had turned. Ah, right. Right. It was a medical wonder. And mm. then Tim Leary starts giving it to all of his undergrads and all of his undergrads start giving it out at parties. Um, and, you know, we could get into the whole sort of, you know, uh, Jan Irvin paranoia of, of that being funded by the government. I don't, I, I think that's very clear that the government had their own agenda around LSD. I'm not entirely sure what that agenda was. Um, but yeah, it, it went from being this medical thing to being a drug, right? A street drug. And that changed the public perception. And so people stopped talking about that. I think it's the same, re you know, it's the same reason that uh, Steve Jobs, you know, said that doing LSD was one of the most important things he ever did in his life and then never expanded on that. Like, how is the founder of Apple going to say that doing LSD was one of the most important things in his yeah. life and not explain what he was talking about? It was enough for me to, <laughs> to try it. Yeah. Right. Uh, and Crick, who discovered the, right, shape of Francis DNA, Crick, yeah. the shape of DNA, the entire genomics revolution wouldn't have happened without LSD, right. at least not the way it did. Eventually, I think somebody would have figured it out, but it didn't happen that way. Right. It happened because he was on LSD. That's the way, that's it, happened. The way it happened. Yeah. Um, and so that's it. Like, our society exists the way that it exists because of psychedelics, period. Computers to genomics to everything that we see in our world that we really appreciate now, I don't think would exist the way that it does without psychedelics being widely used in the 1960s. Right. Um, and I think in terms of a percentage of population, in terms of the number of people using psychedelics, I think right now we are in a bigger psychedelic renaissance than the 1960s. I think more people are using psychedelics now than ever used them during the height of the summer of love. Yeah. Um, it's just not 
concentrated in one city. Yeah. It was yeah. so public in the Bay in the 60s. That's the only difference. It's distributed. It's distributed on college campuses, at festivals, in tech communities. Um, you know, this idea that you're going to have hundreds of thousands of people microdosing and none of them are going to decide to macrodose is insane. Yep. People are going to try these things at fully psychoactive doses. Um, yeah, I, I I think that it's it's interesting that you brought that up because I see a lot of parallels. It's just different, you know. Like LSD was kind of the the thing of the '60s. Now it's kind of more DMT, you know. And and you have like yeah. this sort of I like to think of like a sort of quiet decentralized revolution happening. People in like you said at festivals or in their yep. homes or apartments or parties trying something, you know. And the amount of research that you could do online, the amount of educate like you can find out all this stuff. And there's so many great forums. So yeah, it's a very um, interesting time. Yeah, and and uh, I mean LSD will always have a very special place in my heart. Oh, me too. Um, yeah, but. The reality is, in terms of like immediate change in people's lives, I actually see more of that from uh, DMT than I do from from LSD use. I think DMT tends to be more of a uh, individually, I want to almost say destabilizing, but I don't mean that in a negative context. Transformative is probably the positive way of saying yeah, destabilizing. Yeah. Um, you definitely see more sort of transformative experiences from both NNDMT and certainly from 5-methoxy-DMT, you know, to oh, yeah. uh, toad. Um, I mean, people make major life changes after trying 5-MeO-DMT. Uh, I mean, and now Mike Tyson's out there saying like, oh, I never want to hurt him. You know, like really, he's a different person. Yeah, like a very different seeping person. into the culture. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, good. I, I, would, I would very much like him to talk about some of his own past acts of violence. I mean, he's a convicted sexual assault or it might've even been a rape conviction, right? Yeah. Um, if he's really gotten to the point now where he believes that we're all one thing and that we should be helping the world, I'd like to see him address some of his past decisions. I'd yeah. like to see that from everybody. But uh, at the same time, uh, in terms of pushing like public awareness of these things, I think most people most non-psychedelic users who've never been around psychedelic use or knowingly been around psychedelic use is probably how I should phrase that, have this idea that like you take acid and like little purple elephants dance across the table, right? Right. You're seeing things. Dragons. Dragons. Yeah. There's a dragon guarding the kitchen. I don't think most non-psychedelic users realize how much of the psychedelic experience is not about a change in your perception of the external world. It's a change in what you are, right? It's a change of how you're processing reality, how you're understanding your place in the world, your place between you and your parents and your friends and your job and, you know, oh, all of these things. It's not seeing dragons. It's realizing that in a lot of ways we go through life asleep. Um, and DMT in particular is like, I mean, really one hell of a wake up call for a lot of people. I mean, this realization that I have this deep fundamental belief in consensus reality, right? The thing that I'm seeing and hearing and feeling and touching, that's what's real. That's what's happening. And then you take three deep breaths off of uh, a pipe and it's just gone. Right. I mean, yeah. It's just not there yeah uh it's like it's like a, a guy in camouflage <laughs> like hiding in the woods and you're like i don't see him i don't see anything yeah. and then all of a sudden you smoke dmt and he's bright orange he's bright like, orange yeah. wow now i see it now yeah. everything's here it like it kind of deconditions you from this ideological camouflage that's yeah. been thrust upon us right and and for people who have uh financial or emotional or intellectual investment in maintaining the status quo these are dangerous things right yes and I think that's what a lot of the drug war is about, is about maintaining the status quo. Yeah. Um, and we can't have people thinking for themselves. Right. 
uh, except the status quo on a dying biosphere is definitionally insane. Yep. You know, this idea it's, it's cutting down the last tree on your Island insane, right? It's, you know, when you use the tree to make your fishing boats, um, like it's that level of insane. It's, you know, you're on a a spaceship and you see somebody taking an ax to the wall and you're just like, well, I guess this is just how things are. People just take axes to walls, you know? Um, And when we're living on a planet that is so close to so many different, it's not like there's one ecological crisis, right? It's not like there's, oh, there's just climate change. It's like, no, like a little bit of climate change might freeze all the permafrost, which might release diseases that have been gone for 10,000 years, which might release all this methane into the air, which might, you know, we're talking about interlocking systems that are so complex that we are just now beginning to sort of understand them. Yeah. Which psychedelics also help you see. Which psychedelics also help you see the interconnectedness of these systems. And so really, I I think that's the risk that people see, whether or not ideological prohibitionists actually feel that way, or if that's just like hippie paranoid conspiracy, I don't know. Um, But it feels like that because Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine supporting this system from a, I don't want people using drugs perspective. It just fails so entirely, right? Right. It just fails so badly at the stated goals that it seems unlikely that those stated goals are the real goals. Um, I don't know if you've ever read drug war capitalism, but that, that book also talks a lot about, I haven't. Yeah. It's it it talks about the need to sort of control the flow of drug money. Um, The money is actually, a huge thing right and we know which banks it goes into it's like Mm -hmm. and so the control of money is a big part of it but i'll tell you it does feel like they are scared of this experience or especially around psychedelics right heroin cocaine methamphetamine there are real the people who develop problematic use that problematic use is potentially very problematic right right like it really can ruin those people's lives it really can ruin the lives of people around them it's statistically rare it's driven by prohibition but that doesn't change the fact that those there are certain drugs that do that yeah and maybe that's the that's the plan right so to speak right and i'm not judging those i'm not judging people who use those substances based on that i'm just saying that the outliers on that one are they work really well for media perception around like let's demonize drug use, right? Somebody who's really gotten problematic about their meth use is a, is a compelling media image that can be put out there. People who've gotten really heavy into psychedelic use don't present such a compelling image, right? Uh, you know, the guys walking their pet goats around, you know, downtown New York are like amusing, right? They're funny. They're, you know, oh, look at this guy in his colorful clothes and his dreadlocks. They're not scary in the right. way that people yeah. see those. We could use more of that in society. We could use more, Some more, more amusing goat yeah. walkers. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, I'm not. We've we've got way off on a tangent. I'm not quite sure what the area. Hey, yeah, it's, it's conversation. It's cool, yeah, man. It's yeah, um, I tangent all the time. Yeah, but uh, what you were saying about how I think there you, you oh you made the comment that uh, you see a lot of DMT use, and I think that's certainly true. Um, I also think there's more people using LSD now than we're using it in the '60s. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, the amount of LSD that's being consumed in just in terms of like milligrams. Uh, don't consume a milligram of LSD, by the way. But the term that's being, on a population <laughs> right. dynamic, the amount that's being consumed in milligrams. Well, a lot of uh, there's a lot of psychedelics being consumed, and, and my right. point was that it's like it's kind of more spread out, decentralized, yes. Yes. and it's happening more than I think there's. The, you know, with the '60s, you had this kind of image of like sure, the being the constant, yeah, the concentrated, like hippie, crazy, free yeah. love thing, and yeah. that's not necessarily happening right now. It's a different flavor of what's going on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and and there are some problems with that as well, right? I mean, we definitely see a lot of sort of like super toxic mascul- masculinity within online psychedelic culture. Oh yeah. Um, you know, 
I think a lot of people, a lot of psychedelic users have the perception that psychedelics will necessarily sort of push people to the left um, politically, right? Right, It makes you you more uh, open and caring and loving. And I don't actually think that's true. I think psychedelics are nonspecific amplifiers of creativity. Yes. If you're just an asshole, they make you a more creative asshole. That's all it does. It's a nonspecific amplifier. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, And creativity is good. I I want more creativity in the world, but it's not a panacea to the world's problems. Yeah. Um, I think the integration of the experience is what can be the panacea right if we can learn as a society how to properly guide these experiences um i think that that could really fix a lot of problems particularly with mdma um mdma is not classically considered a psychedelic uh i think it actually can be quite psychedelic but that's actually not about mdma it's about your body metabolizing the mdma into mda Mm. right so in your liver the mdma is being turned into mda and mda can be quite psychedelic um The MDMA experience is one that is so predictable. You know, psychedelics are a bit of a wild card, and that's why people like them. They like the wild card aspect, right? It's a trip. You don't know where you're going. Exactly, yeah, the novelty, the diversity (laughs) of of colors and 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 information. And I love that too, and I'm not knocking that. I think that's a really, really, really... Uh, important and also enjoyable experience. I think it's okay to talk about these things as fun. They're not just tools for changing the world or changing yourself. They're fun and that's okay. It's okay that these things are enjoyable. Uh, MDMA is shockingly predictable. Uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapy, the reason it's becoming the standard over like LSD psychotherapy is that psychedelics can be super unpredictable uh to to use the tea fairy term they can be tricksy right they can go sideways on you um mdma particularly real mdma given in a therapeutic context does what it does um and it does it really really well it does it so well that the fda has now given it breakthrough therapy designation which is like an incredible statement for the fda to make um i think very clearly by 2021 2022 mdma psychotherapy is going to be legal in this country we're going to have to immediately start talking about rescheduling black market mdma um, because if mdma is an, an acceptable medical tool it can't be schedule one that is the law um and so you know marijuana weirdly has never gone through the fda approval process right Mm. it's not an fda approved drug anywhere in the world um that's why marinol is schedule three but th marijuana is still schedule one federally but mdma is going to go it's almost done i mean we're in phase three right now in fact one of the phase three sites is is an hour north of where we're sitting right um and so once mdma is an accepted medical drug uh we need to talk about the fact that people are sitting in prison for decades and decades and decades and decades uh for this substance um and it's just it's just it's unacceptable under any context but especially when pharmaceutical companies are i mean it's a non-profit pharmaceutical company but it's still a pharmaceutical company right we're talking about pharmaceutical use of mdma being legal then street use cannot be treated the way that it's currently treated right um and so I really think that the legalization of MDMA uh, is probably the next fight. I, I've had this conversation with with Kevin, who did the Denver mushroom yep. uh, thing. Yeah, Kevin Matthews, yeah. From a purely political perspective, mushrooms make sense. They're natural. You can make them at home. They're physiologically non-toxic. It makes a lot of sense to decriminalize psilocybin after marijuana. It really does. Uh, 
even pure MDMA can can hurt people. Um, it can kill people. It's it's rare. It's usually environmental. People take it when it's too hot out, or they don't drink enough water, or they drink too much water. Mm-hmm. But people have died from MDMA. We need to be very very honest about that fact. Uh, at the same time, the MDMA experience is so much more controllable. It's so much gentler than the psychedelic experience. It's so much more useful from a therapeutic context, both in a structured therapeutic context and also in the context of just taking MDMA recreationally. And it allows you to examine your own life without any sort of emotional pain. And that is such a difficult thing for so many people to do, to think about their own childhood without immediately just like (coughs) bursting into tears, right? Um, That it allows you to sort of self-regulate your own past trauma in a way that I personally know thousands of people who have had that experience where they've taken MDMA at a rave and they thought it was just going to be a fun night and they like resolved major childhood trauma like on a dance floor. Yep. And like we don't talk about it that way. We don't talk about drug use that way, but it's real and it's really common. Um, Yeah. I mean, I had a beautiful moment like that, you know, Uh, we were having fun. We were at a show, me and my girlfriend, we just decided, hey, you know what? There's some stuff coming up here about our relationship. Let's go lay in this hammock over here. Right. You know, and it was I mean, we had a great time. It was beautiful. Right. You know? yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, uh, after MDMA therapy is made legal because of the way that, uh, because of the way that, that medical insurance works in this country, because of people's lack of ability to afford therapy, I think we're going to have millions of people who are trying to access this outside of a medical context. And we're really going to need to grapple with that, um, because realistically, DanceSafe has a staff of three, right? And if we have 2 million new people trying to take MDMA, I mean, we have 2,000 volunteers, but we have a staff of three. And if you have millions of people now trying to reach these drugs, uh, misrepresentation and adulteration are going to be huge issues. Education is going to be a huge issue. Um, and so we're really going to need to grapple with this, not from a this one small nonprofit based in Denver perspective. We're going to need a societal response to this. And we are already in the time frame for starting to grapple with this, right? Yeah. Uh, phase three is going to be done in end of 2020, beginning of 2021. It might be a little bit late. Um, there was some, uh, apparently some uh, hiccups with the manufacturing of legal MDMA that they weren't expecting. But certainly by 2022, um, MDMA is going to be a legal prescription drug in this country. Right, yeah. Um, and people are going to be trying to, people with PTSD who can't afford MDMA psychotherapy are not simply going to give up on that possibility. Right. They're not. And they shouldn't. I'm not like I'm not even I'm not even suggesting that they do give up on that. I'm actually suggesting that they don't give up on that. Um, but that is going to be a major, major source of potential problems that we need to stay out ahead of. And we're not we're not we're not really talking about. It. I mean, we're trying as as an organization. Dancing yeah. is trying. Yeah. Um, I have not heard uh, anyone from the FDA discussing this. The FDA is not interested in in tertiary non quote unquote non medical use of their drugs. Other than how do we stop that? Right? How do we stop the non medical use of our drugs? That's the only thing they care about. Yeah. So they just care about that meg- medical regulated. Right. That's the thing. But for everybody else. It's not a problem. Don't do it. Right. That's the answer. And and don't do it. This isn't for you. But we know people are going to do it because that's what people do. And recently there was uh, this thing that happened uh, in Australia where the girl overdosed. I think she was taking MDMA. Right. Um, Do you know the story? Yeah. So – I'm not sure I know this specific story, but it's actually she was trying a really, to, yeah, she's, it's a common one. It's right? a common story. Trying to avoid being caught by the police right. or the security. Right. So the police in Australia have taken to running drug dogs up and down the line at festivals. Um, 
their ability to search people is actually quite a bit more expansive than the police's ability in the United States. Police in Australia have uh, less constraints on their ability to perform searches. Uh, people have been body cavity searched in lines at festivals. I mean, not in the line, but right. They've wow. been caught in the line and then pulled into like a, you know, yeah. a trailer or whatever. Oh, thankfully. Um, line, yeah. And so uh, people who are carrying, say, their drugs for a 10 hour party, see these drug dogs coming, they panic and they swallow everything they're carrying. Oh. Right. And the plan was, Oh, I'll take one. And then in an hour I'll take two more. And then a few hours later, maybe I'll take another one. And then I'll have like one or two if a friend wants one, or like if I really decide I want to go hard at the end of the night and they swallow, you know, eight or nine or 10 capsules of, of what's, either is supposed to be MDMA or even is MDMA. Um, and even if your pills really are MDMA, taking, you know, 1.3 grams, particularly, it tends to be a lot of young, relatively physically small women, right? And so their body weight is quite low. The brain weight is quite low. Uh, and taking 1.2 grams with no drugs in your system, no tolerance built up is potentially fatal. Mm -hmm. um, MDMA at, at those doses is not necessarily going to kill you. There are plenty of people who've taken MDMA at those doses and not died, but it also certainly can kill you. Um, it also makes you far more susceptible to hyperthermia. So like, or, or uh, not hyper, hypothermia, hyper, like to overheating. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Overheating, uh, hypernatremia where you drink either too much water or not enough dehydration. Both of those things are actually issues on, mm -hmm. on MDMA. Um, not just on MDMA. I mean, uh, marathon runners used to contend with this as well. Drinking too much water yeah, can kill you. Drown yeah. yourself from the inside. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you throw off your saline levels, and once you've once you've thrown off your saline levels, we're actually very delicately balanced walking oceans. <laughs> and once you throw off those saline levels, the ocean doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and it's really important for the ocean to work. Otherwise, your brain doesn't function super well. And that's what happens: is you throw off your saline levels, and things start to shut down. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so people who take these huge doses of MDMA because of the security apparatus, um, those are another like really clear example of deaths that are directly attributable to prohibition and public policy. Uh, we as a society have made the decision that those are acceptable deaths based on our stigma around drug use. Right. Um, that girl did not swallow 10 capsules of MDMA because she wanted to party really hard. She did it because she was afraid of going to prison. She right. did it because she saw a drug dog. She freaked out and she took her drugs. Um, and it's a really common thing for people to sort of glibly dismiss these as, oh, this person decided to use drugs, right? This person made the decision to take those drugs. So like, I'm not concerned about that death. I don't, I don't care about that death. Um, and you see that particularly in online comments around news stories. I actually have a little sticky, sticky note next to my desk right now that says not reading the comments is self care. Mm. Um, just to like remind myself that like people will say things on the internet that maybe they don't even fully believe. Right. Um, but it's really a common thing to see. And weirdly, you never see those comments on stories about people who died in car accidents, right? We made a decision to get in the car. But like, you don't ever see people blame the driver for getting in the car. You don't ever see it when somebody dies from a parachuting accident. You certainly never see it around military deaths, right? Like this person made a decision to put on armor and go into battle. Like that's a very potentially dangerous thing that person made the decision to do, but we don't ever blame those people for those deaths. You don't ever see like, oh, screw them. Like they joined the army. What did they think was going to happen? You don't ever see it around those deaths, but suddenly around substance use, then you see that sort of really judgmental attitude. And that is something that 
is really driven by government policy. This idea that drugs are evil, intrinsically evil. Uh, drugs are intrinsically dangerous. And if you take them, you deserve what you get. Uh, even if all of that was true, even if all of that was the case, these people aren't dying because the drugs are intrinsically dangerous. They're still dying because of government policy. Uh, and there's a tiny handful of MDMA deaths that we can't explain. There are a tiny handful where people yeah, took them in that's cool always going to happen, right? But that's on yeah. a population dynamic. That's always going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, give me 0.3% of the drug war budget. We can probably develop a pretty simple blood test for screening these people, right? I think yeah. there's probably metabolic and genetic things at play that we could figure out pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, you, br you brought up, uh, you know... Um, people dying in cars and things like that. And I think at the good cinema panel, you brought up cheerleading as oh, yeah, being cheerleading, yeah. uh, like a, a cause of death. that's very high that outweighs these things. And David Nutt, I think wrote a paper right. about, uh, I forget what it's called, like equine deaths. Oh yeah. The, yeah, the yeah. amount of deaths uh, that occur from riding horses is far higher than right. MDMA. Right. Um, and, but for some reason, and even, you know, going back to when I was talking about the decriminalization of mushrooms, talking with people who are mushroom users or, or things like that, they, they would say, you know, you try to explain these, kinds of things and like look there, there's more deaths here there's more chance for accidents here but because of that framework like right. we were saying before it doesn't get through because the stigma is so heavy the conditioning is so so heavy so what 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 are some things that dance safe and, and yourself are, are doing to kind of further that conversation along where are the inroads like where can we make yeah make, make the conversation happen yeah so i think uh you know Public talks is a big part of it, right? I try to speak at a lot of festivals rather than just like boothing festivals. Now, my personal time is taken up quite quite heavily by oh, speaking great. at festivals. Nice. Yeah, um, some festivals are very receptive to it, some less. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, every party that Tipper throws, he lets me get on stage on the main stage for like an hour and talk about drugs. Which oh, is amazing. amazing! Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a really huge supporter. Um, that's one part of it. I think another part of the conversation is around encouraging substance users to come out to their uh, peers about their substance use. Come out of the substance closet. Right, right. Uh, yeah, coming out of the fractal closet. <laughs> um, and uh, I really think, you know, a conversation with parents and grandparents can be super powerful, right? Around, uh, I've used these substances. I, I had great benefit from these substances. Um I also think a major part of what we do, our core mission of harm reduction, uh, is the fight. That is the fight, is actually minimizing the number of deaths that happen. Yeah. Right. So every festival we're at where we're doing testing and we're educating users. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've seen your table. It's like right. you could spend the whole day there getting educated on right. all the stuff you guys have. Right. And so and so by providing that education, by providing testing on site, we minimize the number of deaths. And every death is a media firestorm that moves the conversation further into that prohibitionist model even though these deaths are caused by prohibition that doesn't change the situation yeah. um and so really that's our place in the in the fight is minimizing these deaths while we're operating under the system of prohibition um man if we could get like three months with no drug deaths that would be like a major conversation right um Right now, the conversation is so heavily focused on opioids, and it makes sense. More people die from opioids every two weeks than have died from MDMA since it was invented. And so I understand why the conversation focuses there. I understand why the money for harm reduction goes to opioid harm reduction. I, I fully get all of that. Um, I, I actually think that focusing molecule by molecule on decriminalization, legalization, reform, I think is a mistake. I think that's a tactical mistake. Um, I think what all of us should be doing uh, 
it's awesome, we, right? We legalized psilocybin in Denver. I'm super proud of the work Kevin did. I think it's incredible that, I'm not just Kevin, I mean, there's a whole team. Kevin sort of is the, he's the most public one out there. I don't know who else can be named by name. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I was so proud of the work they did. At the same time, I think it's really important that we not continue a molecule by molecule fight. Um, I think what we really need to be talking about is the harms of drug prohibition as a system, the fact that of all drugs, most users do not develop problematic substance use, including drugs like heroin, methamphetamine, and cocaine. Most users of those drugs do not develop the DSM criteria for problematic use. They are definitionally recreational users. And so we are spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on a system that's designed to mitigate problems that are really about prohibition and about a small percentage of users. And so if we can take the money that's going to prohibition and retool it towards education, harm reduction, oh my God, medical yes. treatment, we could end drug deaths. Oh we my could God, end yeah. them. Um, and when you're talking about something that is now the leading cause of death for people under the age of 40, right? Leading cause of death in all 50 states is substance use for people under the age of 40. Um, we cannot continue with the same sort of piecemeal fight. We are in a crisis. More people are dying from substance use now than died from HIV at the height of HIV deaths, than die from cancer, than die from gun deaths, than die from car accidents. It's a huge number of people. We are losing an entire generation of people to this issue. And it's an issue that we can fix really, really easily. It's so rare that there's big problems that have easy solutions. Yeah. Um, and in this case, there is. There is an easy solution, and it's to stop causing the deaths. Right. We are causing them, so stop causing them. I, yeah, um, I would I would love for us to repurpose, you know, for our government to repurpose the money and put it into education instead of spending, you know, $785 billion a right. year on defense and, you right. know, prison and all this stuff. That might not happen, but there is the private sector. There's donations. Is that possible? You know, if do you think that's possible? Question one and question two. If Dance Safe were to get like a huge donation, yeah. say like a billion dollars from someone, uh, then you guys would be able to do a lot of really amazing things. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, a billion seems unlikely. I, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> All right. Let's say. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's let's say ten million. Ten million. I okay. mean, look, if someone wants to give me a billion dollars, I'll take it tomorrow. Yeah, me um, too. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I think that the financial constraints are real. They they severely limit what DanceSafe can can do. Um, a lot of big donors historically have been hesitant to publicly support harm reduction. Uh, even people who support medical research have been hesitant to support harm reduction. Right. Um, again, drug war stigma harming yeah. the situation. Got to come out of the closet. Um, yeah. I I think that there's a lot that DanceSafe can do to mitigate the harms of prohibition. This really does require governmental change. Okay. This really does require public policy change. And right. so DanceSafe has been sort of slowly getting involved in that fight. Okay. Um, so in a lot of states, uh, drug testing kits are considered paraphernalia. Um, no one's ever been arrested for just having a test kit. But if they find a test kit with your drugs, they'll charge you with a paraphernalia charge. Oh, and it makes people hesitant to sell them, right? Yeah. Like retail stores. Um, we have now changed that in Colorado. Uh, we... Uh, it's it's test kits are now completely legal in the state of Colorado. Right. Um, and so we're working on a retail rollout plan so that they're going to be available in head shops. And, and uh, we've actually been in conversations with officials with the Denver County government about the possibility of doing drug checking days at Denver County health clinics, um, particularly now that drug possession in Colorado as of, I believe, March next year is when it 
changes mm-hmm. will be a misdemeanor, not a felony. Yeah. So now we're just talking about police ignoring misdemeanors for harm reduction purposes, not ignoring felonies. So that's going to be very helpful for pushing the conversation forward about doing public drug checking services in, yeah. this, in Colorado. Um, but the, you know, the, uh, you know, the old joke, you know, the first the first step to healing a wound is you pull out the knife. Um, and I think really the knife is prohibition and we really are still the knife is still in our the back of our body politic. Um, and I think dance safe can do a lot to sort of stem the flow of of blood. But really healing the wound is going to require changing government policy. Yeah, um, it's going to require major, major change in how we treat drug use at a societal level. Um and I don't know if that change is going to come from the left or the right. I mean, it could come from either side. It really could. This is a civil rights issue from the left. It's a cognitive liberty and freedom issue from the right. This is an, an area where I really think we could see real bipartisan sure. action and real bipartisan support. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, just, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about how quickly the Patriot Act passed. Sure, sure. And it's like, you know, we are capable, the government's capable of making vast changes sure. very quickly. But then, you know, when it comes to things like this, you, you, you know, it's a lot of slow, bureaucratic, yeah. you know, paper pushing yeah. and red tape. And and yeah, and I don't and I don't really like uh, my personal politics are, are quite far to the left. Um but on on this issue, there are certainly Democrats running for president now who are arguably worse than Trump on this issue. Yeah. On on the on the whole, I'm not saying they're Biden. Uh, Biden is a real good didn't example. He, didn't he like write the rave? He act? did. He wrote the rave act, yeah. uh, which makes Dancy's work very difficult. Uh, he also co I believe co authored the Patriot Act. Um, he you know. Uh, Clinton, Bill Clinton, oversaw the largest growth of private prisons in the history of this country. Uh, there are Democrats out there who are real law and order prohibitionist Democrats. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, this is not a left or right issue. This is a this is a civil rights, cognitive liberty issue that really should unite us on. Oh, totally. And we really I could agree. use a few issues that unite this country. It would be lovely to have a few big changes that really bring the country together. And I think this is one of them. I think this is an issue where we really can find common ground with people from all sides of the political spectrum. Uh, yeah. Because even if you don't use drugs, you are being massively taxed and massively harmed by the war on drugs. Uh, Civil asset forfeiture has absolutely hit people who had nothing to do with the drug trade. They were just robbed by their government. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I think I I remember that reading this study in 2015, civil asset forfeiture surpassed actual reported crime and robbery and theft. Right, right. So the the police police steal more than criminals, literally, like in terms of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, civil asset forfeiture does not require conviction in a court of law. Uh, your property does not have the presumption presumption of innocence. Your property is actually presumed guilty, and then you have to go to court and prove that you didn't earn the money illegally. Uh, yeah, a lot so, of people don't know that. Right, right, right. Yeah. So they're not they're not charging you. You'll actually see court cases that are like you know the state of Florida versus a 1987 Chevy. Like you'll see that court case, and yeah. that's who they're charging. They're charging the car. Right. And then you have to go to court and prove that you didn't buy that car with illegal proceeds and you have to have attorneys and often the cost of doing that is higher than the cost of the thing they took and so yeah. it's just not worth it from a dollar's perspective right. to yeah. go get your stuff back and and the people that have a lot of money typically have power and control too they can get out of that these these sure. systems are are created sure for them to find the loopholes, right? And also there's so much discretion with law enforcement that realistically if they pull over somebody in a brand new Mercedes coming out of a very nice building. Yeah. Even if they and he's think black and right. Yeah. Um, and he's black. The, the odds of them seizing that car are a lot higher than if he's white. Right. 
uh, regardless of his job or income or, and, and that's just a reality. It's absolutely the case. There's tons Happens of statistical all the time. data. Right. Yeah. Right. And we have tons of statistical data to, to back that up that, that law enforcement really does behave differently with different races. Yeah. Um, and yeah, with civil asset forfeiture, you're really just sort of out of luck. I mean, it's really just, it's up to you to have the ability to go fix this. And most people don't have that ability. Right. Um, and so that's where it's at. Uh, and we know this is happening to innocent people. I mean, it's happened to innocent people. And so even if you don't use drugs, you have a you have a dog in this fight. You have a reason to not be supporting this this system. Um, and also just recently, I don't know if you saw, there's a police officer in Florida who was just indicted mm-hmm. for planting methamphetamine on hundreds of people, hundreds of people. He planted methamphetamine right, on. Yeah. yeah, Dave Chappelle famously joked about this in his, right, in right, his right, special. Right. <laughs> ah, just sprinkle some crack on him and get out of here. Right, you know? right, but, right. But with good comedy, there's always truth to it. Right. And this is happening. Right. And uh, people that he planted methamphetamine on lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their children in some cases. And uh, the ability for police to do that, even if they're just few and far between bad actors, the ability for them to just like randomly create crime like that doesn't exist without drug prohibition. Mm. It's like this broken window uh, theory of of fixing things. Well, if we we create if there's enough problems then we have we can create more jobs for police and they can solve them they're incentivized to ticket and arrest right and and police get uh you know they get raises and promotions based on conviction rates and boy planting drugs is a really quick way to manufacture convictions i mean the drugs are there they had the drugs um and so like that's it the drugs are there and these people were getting convicted of drug possession and, and going to jail and the police officers were getting bonuses and getting or police officer. There's only one that was known to be doing this in this particular department. But, uh, you know, I, I, from a purely sort of like job, uh, you know, job protection understanding of things, it's hard to imagine this is a one-off. It's hard to imagine that no other police officer in the country has ever been like, Oh, you know what? Like I can literally just like plant little baggies all the way to my retirement. Yeah. Like I can. Yeah. And then you're a hero. And then you're a you know. hero. Yeah. I was the highest number of drug convictions of any cop in this county. Um, the idea that that doesn't happen really often seems unlikely. It seems very unlikely. Yeah. That's a warped perspective of how we measure protection right. to protect and to serve. Right, you know, right. they're supposed to be doing that. Right. And cops have a really difficult job. Like I've never, oh, yeah. I've never had anyone shoot at me as part of my job. So it's hard for me to judge the mentality that develops when you're like really under siege. Sure, but yeah. a lot of why they're under siege is because we've created artificial profits from drug pro- for, through drug prohibition. Yeah. They've so, also, they've also gotten military grade weapons and training yeah, too yeah, from yeah, the yeah. war on terror that yeah. that beefs it up even more and more and you know how men in suits with guns feel yeah, like yeah. you know oh i'm batman i'm rolling around in a tank i'm doing you know stopping protesters yeah it's it's a it's a nasty system and it's it's interlocked with so many other things that it's yeah. hard to imagine how we're going to unwind this right but, yes that's that's the question that i want to ask you because i agree with you we need to act now yeah you know i was on this panel the other night and i was saying that you know if you're taking psychedelics with the intention of healing and growing and these sorts of things with a real intentional purpose, it's not, it's not enough to just keep doing that. We need to actually act in this world to do, to do things because I don't believe in this incremental, you know, get the ball to the first down. Right. right. Although that is what's happening. Yeah. What can, what else can we do? You know, like, yeah, how, what I, would you, I guess in your ideal vision, my ideal vision, yeah, uh, see. we would see a coalition of, of left and right politicians coming together to have this conversation about the harms of prohibition and how to mitigate them. Right. Looking at the international example of, of other countries that have moved in this direction, uh, 
so somebody somebody once told me that every somebody who had a reason to know this once told me that every major social change looks impossible the day before it happens and inevitable the day after. Yes, yes. Right. So the idea that women would someday be able to vote the day before was impossible and the day after was inevitable. The idea yeah. that we would end slavery the day before was impossible the day after was inevitable. Uh, liberating concentration camps, defeating the Nazis, all of these things looked right. impossible. The Berlin Wall, the Berlin Wall know, falling. Yeah. Um, and so my hope is that drug legalization, uh, or rather the legalization of cognitive liberty, the legalization of our ability to control our own minds, right? The freedom of consciousness. The freedom of consciousness is one of these fights that the day after we fix this is going to look inevitable. We're going to look back and say, how could we not have done this? Um, and I really think that the medical research is going to play an important role in that. Uh, I think that's going to be a huge part of it. I think people who use psychedelics and other substances non-problematically, people who are using them uh, in ways that are not causing harm to their lives, uh, coming out to the people around them and telling them about this. Um, I understand there's very real legal risk there. I get that. I'm saying if you have the ability to do that, it's something that you should do. Um, I think is going to play a huge part in that. Uh, this might be one of these situations that takes mass nonviolent resistance. This might be one of those things that takes people physically yeah. shutting down the civil disobedience, civil disobedience, massive civil disobedience around cognitive liberty. Yeah. Um, and we really are talking about a civil rights fight. This is not a fight about substance use per se. This is a fight about either we own who we are. We own our bodies and minds or our bodies and minds belong to the government. That's what this comes down to. We're either free or we're not. And there isn't a lot of gray in my mind in this conversation. And it ties in really heavily with the abortion fight as well, right? The way that Roe v. Wade was decided was on this idea of privacy rights, right? A woman has a right to medical decisions about her own body and the privacy of her own sort of intrinsic bodily autonomy protects her from government control of that decision. It's really hard to imagine how that same argument doesn't apply to substance use, right? If, if that is a right that humans have to their own bodily autonomy and to their own privacy about their decisions they have made with their own bodies, they either have that right or they don't. Right. Um, and in my mind, we just fundamentally do. We are fundamentally free to make those decisions uh, along with the responsibility to deal with the consequences of those decisions. Yeah. But the government should not be making those decisions more dangerous. That's not an appropriate response. Right. Um, you know, if a person takes powerful psychedelics in an unsafe environment and jumps off a building, it's very, very sad. It's an individual tragedy. Uh, it is also the result of their decision-making process, and that should not have any consequence on other people who want to engage in that substance use. Right, exactly, yeah. Right, so a person who, you know, does 140 on the highway and spins out of control and dies is not a reason to ban cars. Right. And we shouldn't talk about substance use that way. And that's how we talk about it now, right? Look, oh, if we legalize psychedelics, people are going to be jumping off buildings. It's like, even if that's the case, and I don't think it is, even if that's the case, that's not a reason to continue the criminalization of these drugs. Yeah. Um, and so we really have to be pushing that in the public perception, this idea of fundamental cognitive liberty. We have a right to our own bodies and minds. Yeah. We own them. They're ours. Yeah. My body, uh, my choice. My mind, my choice. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, 
I, I, I think that having that conversation loudly and publicly is going to be a really important one because it ties in with a million other fights that are going on on this planet. I mean, we talked about, you know, ecological, the realization of the interconnectedness of ecological stuff coming from psychedelics, but also just from like a, uh, environmental protection uh, side of things, just from the drug production side, producing drugs in black markets is very environmentally toxic. Right. And it's really easy to do it in a way that's not toxic to the environment if you're doing it legally. Right. Right? There's nothing intrinsic about manufacturing MDMA that requires you to cut down Cambodian rainforests. It's just an easy source of black market saffron oil. And so people do it. And so this huge amount of deforestation was happening because of MDMA production. Um, thankfully, there's a new precursor in town that has substantially mitigated that but certainly with cocaine production the dumping of chemicals in the rivers in in colombia and, and belize has become a huge issue you know people producing meth just like dumping their chemicals in the united states is a massive environmental issue and there's just a million different fights where this all ties in together um i really think the biggest one is with mdma assisted psychotherapy in particular people often come to this realization that uh they don't want to fight wars anymore. Soldiers often come to this realization that they have no interest in, in the war, the warfare state. Right. Um, and our society spends so much money on what we call defense. Right. Right. But is really the protection of, of for-profit military contractor proceeds. It's really the protection of Petro business overseas. It's about resource development and resource extraction. Yeah. Opium, um, opium production in Afghanistan. Opium production in right? Afghanistan. All of these things are tied together. You think that that's, I, I don't have the, the evidence, but I'm pretty sure if you look at the, oh, you I know, mean, we, uh, we've been in Afghanistan for 17 years yeah, or more, yeah. whatever it is, 18 years and the, and the opium uh, pandemic. Yeah. It breaks a right, breaks yeah. a record every year. Yeah. The, the amount I mean, of opium produced. Coincidence that. or yeah. Right, and we're now at the point where uh, children whose parents were part of the first wave in Afghanistan Ugh. are in the military. Yeah. So we have so gener sad. generational fights in yeah. Afghanistan now. The saddest thing about that is that the people that are being born, they're into this. This is just the new normal for them. Yeah. So, you know, younger kids, 20, 21, they don't even really realize. They're just like, well, this is how it's always been, right? Right. Right. And, and what have we gotten out of it? I mean, what have we gotten other than proceeds for a very small percentage of people? A lot right. of money. A lot of money has been made. Yeah. And we keep uh, heading uh, more and more into the disaster zone. But, do, you know, dance safe and, and what you're doing and, you know, hopefully what I'm doing and just furthering the conversation along, trying to educate people, get this out there, come out, talk about these things and all the other things that we can do. Maybe, you know, even getting involved in politics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think running for office is super important. I think uh, both at the local level and, the, and state and federal level. Uh, but even having people on debate stages who are saying this would be such a game changer, right? right? If one presidential candidate would come out and say, I'm not talking about legalizing pot. I am talking about ending prohibition. We're talking about ending drug, the drug war as a system. We're talking about letting every federal prisoner who is in prison for possession go. Right. Tomorrow, yeah. I'm going to sign a piece of paper and every person who's sitting in federal prison for simple possession is free. Uh, I think... It, that is such a no brainer for so many people. We spend so much money incarcerating people far more than it would cost to send them to Harvard. It makes sense to segregate a certain people who are violent criminals. I am not suggesting we let those people roam the streets. It makes sense to have a place where people can be sent to keep them away from the rest of society. If they are, th are a real danger to the rest of us. Yeah. 
but that is not the statistical reality of people in prisons. The statistical reality is most of the people in prisons are there for victimless crimes. And that is simply unacceptable that we have built this massive prison population. Uh, you know, like I said, the largest prison population in the history of the world, yeah. both in Scary. absolute numbers and in percentage of population yeah. in the United States today because of the drug war. Um, and yeah, people just accept it as the new normal, but right. this isn't normal. This isn't the historical norm. The idea that we would ban people using certain drugs is the historical anomaly. Most, most civilizations throughout the history of the world did not restrict what drugs people could take at all. Some of them restricted it sort of uh, tertiarily, you know, oh, these drugs can only be used certain times. Um, you know, ancient Greeks had the Eleusinian Mysteries. Heroin o'clock. Yeah. Heroin o'clock. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Eleusinian Mysteries, right? Right, yeah, right. Such a I crucial mean, uh, period. A, a crucial period of our, our Western civilization's development, uh, clearly driven by psychedelics, but it was psychedelic use that yeah. was tightly controlled. The kaikion. Right, right. But it, was, it, was, it wasn't like you could take it home, right? You had to go to a place to use it. Yeah, it, it kind of fell in line with like the the... the Huxleyan view right. of like, let the kind of intellectual class right. distribute um, this. Although I think the, the, the mystery is anyone who had not been convicted of murder could go. Right? Uh, so right. even slaves, yeah, even as slaves long as could. you were a resident, as long as you were a resident, citizen, you could yeah. go do it. Um, and so maybe that's the model for legalizing psychedelics is having a place where psychedelics are legal, right? Having a place where anyone who wants to go and use psychedelics can use them. Uh, I'm actually a, a, a larger fan of the idea of, broad decriminalization. Yeah. I think that, that uh, treating possession as a criminal thing is never helpful. Uh, but if distribution happens at, at psychedelic centers, I'm pretty okay with that. Yeah. Um, but what we're doing now is not just a failing system. It's a failed system. Yeah. Um, drug prohibition is not falling. It's fallen. Uh, and the ultimate proof of that is that in the civilization where we have the highest percentage of prison population in the history of the world in the civilization where the police can simply take your money on the th theory that it was generated through drug crime in a civilization where our fourth amendment rights have been massively eroded. Our first amendment rights have been massively eroded in a civilization where we have taken the drug war almost to the point where we just treat society as a prison. Mm. We are losing more people to opioid deaths oh, than ever before. Yeah. There's nowhere else to go. Yeah. Um, and people are dying of opioid deaths in maximum security prisons. Right. So even if we did take yeah. it that far. They're even getting it in there. They're getting yeah. it there. So <laughs> even if we it. took it to the point where police could stop you on the street and cavity search you, where the Fourth Amendment didn't exist, they could search your home at any time, uh, where police could shoot suspected drug dealers on the street with no repercussions, even if we took it to that extreme, it wouldn't fix a thing. Yeah. And so that's it. The system has fallen. We need to build a new one. It's just about forcing the political class to realize that the system has fallen because they're so insulated from it. Yeah. Um, you know, the people who run this country, the people who are the sort of political leadership of this country, they don't generally buy drugs. They buy doctors, right? They can get their, they can get their pharmaceutical amphetamines. No problem, right? Mm -hmm. A sleep shift disorder, right? Or, uh, you know, just, Oh, I, I just, I need my Xanax to fly and I need, you know, they get all the drugs they want, whatever they want. Yeah. Steroids, anything, anything, yeah. anything they want to get, they can get. Yeah. Um, it's really just those of us who don't have money and power that are forced to go through the system of the black markets. Right. Yeah. And classist racist system. It's a classist racist system by design. And they're so insulated from the effects of it that it never occurs to them that 
this has become a, a, a rotting wound in our country. But boy, when you see the number of opioid deaths now, it's really hard to ignore that. Yeah. Unfortunately, the solutions that we're hearing are solutions that in general would make it worse. And uh, I think we're running close to time. Yeah. So yeah, so let me, I'll give one quick example of, of a solution that would make this Great. so much worse. Yeah. If you look at a distribution of opioid deaths in this country, it's very clear that the fentanyl crisis is hitting port cities the hardest. It's not cities along the U.S.-Mexico border. It's cities that have lots of numbers of shipping containers that enter them where the fentanyl crisis has hit the hardest, and they sort of radiate out from those cities. Areas that are connected to the traditional Mexican heroin distribution networks have a lower number of opioid deaths than areas that don't because it's not heroin that's killing people. It's when the heroin gets too far away from its source, it's been stepped on so much that it doesn't work. Yeah. People cut fentanyl into the heroin, and that's what kills right, people. Right, to maximize profit. To maximize profit. And so if we did manage to build a wall along the southern border and completely cut off the supply of actual heroin, we would see an explosion of fentanyl and fentanyl analog deaths in Oof. this country that I think would dwarf what's happening now. I don't actually think we're in the middle. People always say, oh, we're in the middle of the worst opioid crisis in history. I think in some ways we're at the beginning of it. Um, fentanyl is a very powerful drug. And the reason people use it is that it's easy to smuggle. And the harder you make it to smuggle drugs into this country, the more you encourage encourage dealers to switch to more potent analogs. And there's no way to stop a drug like 4-fluorobutafentanyl, which has something like, uh, I think it's something like 500,000 potentially fatal doses in a gram. You can't stop anyone from smuggling a gram of powder into this country. You can't stop people from smuggling a gram of powder into Supermax. Right. And so if you force people to switch to more potent analogs, you're going to see more deaths. You're going to see more overdoses. You're going to see more transports. You're going to see more of these problems. And so, the, you know, it's this idea that... Uh, you can't solve a problem with the same level of thinking that created it. Right. And we are in a crisis created by government policy, created by prohibition and more prohibition is just going to make it worse. Yeah. We have this like gaping wound on our side right? and we just keep putting bandaid after bandaid right. after bandaid on top of and it. And now we're talking about bigger knives, right? Right. We're going to fix it with a bigger knife. Mitchell, this has been amazing. Yeah, yeah. I could, really... I could talk to you for 17 hours straight, <laughs> man. This is awesome. Um, I think we covered a, a couple of the questions here, uh, some of them from the Psychedelic Club of Denver. So let me just uh, move on to um, – well, the, here's one. Uh, the, the criminalization culture setting – how does the criminalization culture setting affect the mindset of psychedelic users – if that increases the number of people who have negative experiences that shows. Yeah. Did we get to that? Or? No, we didn't. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the really interesting dynamics when you read psychedelic history is that this idea of a bad trip didn't really exist when it was like a bunch of graduate students at Harvard using LSD. Um, they didn't really even realize that like these negative experiences were possible. In their mind, it was this universally positive experience. Uh, it was really only with the crackdown and the criminalization and the spread of... of uh, really just outright lies. I don't even want to call it misinformation. When the government says that LSD can shatter chromosomes, they're lying, right? right? They knew that was a lie. Um, that we started seeing all of these sort of problematic experiences. And so, yeah, I think this is another really good example of a thing that people point to as a reason why drugs need to be illegal that's actually created by drugs being illegal. Um, I think if psychedelics were legalized through some sort of 
site model or a licensing model where you had to go get your license to use LSD, uh, we could virtually eliminate these problems. Not entirely. Psychedelics are tricksy. They can go sideways. Right, yeah. Um, but I think the reason they often go sideways is a underlying paranoia and fear created by prohibition. Right, yeah. And uh, I'm going to... Qu- Question here, and this will be the last one uh, from Matt Kale of Veterans for Natural Rights. Uh, he wants to know if they can train some of our veterans on drug reagent testing kits for harm reduction. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always happy to do trainings. We're actually getting ready to uh, roll out hopefully a fully online drug reagent training program so people could go online and learn how to use these things very, very easily. Um, the instructions are pretty self-evident. The sort of hardest part about this is getting people to actually read the instructions. Uh, you'll often have people who sort of slip into this, oh, it reagent tested properly, so it's pure, right? They slip into that mentality. And so really just teaching people over and over and over again that that's not what reagent testing means, right? It means primary composition. It means statistical probability that it is what it's supposed to be. It's not a certainty. It doesn't mean the drug use is safe. It just means that it there's a, a high probability that it is the substance you thought it was going to be. Um, but yeah, I'm always happy to do training, certainly with, uh, I think veterans in particular are really turning to the black market to try to treat their PTSD because the current cures, cures, the current treatments are, are so ineffective that they have friends who went through phase two MDMA therapy. They see how helpful it was and they immediately try to go access this on the black market. Right. Um, and so, yeah, happy to, happy to do that. And, and, uh, chat with him about that because yeah i think it's really important that anyone who's accessing any drug outside of a regulated context has to know that they need to chemically analyze that drug um one of the hardest things to train people out of is this idea that they trust the person they got it from. Right. Of course you trust the person you got it from. You were buying drugs from them. You know, like, like I don't, I think very few users in the history of the world bought drugs from someone they didn't trust. Right. That's intrinsic to the process. It's not about trusting your guy. It's about understanding that misrepresentation happens very high in the supply chain. It's about your guys, 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 guy who I promise you, no matter what the drug is, is probably not a guy you would hang out with. Right. Like five up the chain in any drug distribution network, there's probably somebody you would not want to bring to dinner. Right. Um, Totally. It's just the nature of the game because there's so much money involved that it requires a certain type of person to be involved in that business at that scale. Yeah. Um, Again, because of prohibition, there's nothing intrinsic about the drugs that drives this dynamic. It's just the the drug war. But if people were getting it from like David Nichols or, you know, uh, Rick Strassman or people like that. Right, right, right. If you, if, if there was a legal regulated system where you could go to the, the, the Rick Strassman DMT center, ah, <laughs> you man. know, I would love to see the Rick. I mean, uh, yeah, I, uh, that's what we're talking about, right? Is if you could create a center where people could go and access these things legally, um, it would not only eliminate misrepresentation, but I think substantially mitigate difficult experiences. Yeah. Cause there's a difference when you're about to go into a powerful psychedelic state of being in a criminal black market or being in a place where it's accepted, known, understood, and you've had to go through a whole training process about how to use these drugs. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do. I think that's the solution is is the creation of these legal markets. And until then, everyone just needs to understand that black markets are intrinsically adulterated, intrinsically misrepresented. And if you don't personally chemically analyze the substances you're taking, you don't know what they are. Yeah. And that's it. You just don't know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Guys, go to dancesafe.org. Find out all the information there. Uh, donate. Volunteer. Mitchell, where are you going to be at next? Uh, Burning Man. Um, so if you're coming to the burn, I will be publishing my schedule hopefully in the next like two weeks. It'll be on the dance, Safe Facebook page on our Twitter. It'll be everywhere. Um, I'm, I'm, I have 
two talks hard confirmed, two more soft confirmed, uh, and one more potential. So I will certainly be speaking uh, actually really quickly. Let me, uh, oh, my phone is off. I don't know how much time we have. Let's see how quickly I can get my phone turned on. I'm going to see if I can pull up my schedule. Um, But there are uh, sort of two really big psychedelic speaker camps at Burning Man this year. So Palenque Norte is a speaker series that's been going on for decades and decades and decades. Um, It was actually a speaker series that uh, McKenna was heavily involved with um, way back in the day. Uh, and so now Palenque Norte happens at uh, Burning Man. I am yeah. speaking there. Is that Lorenzo Haggerty that organized that? Bruce Damer and Lorenzo? Uh, that's or? not who I've been talking to, okay. but I'm not. There's uh, we're not the there's a lot of cooks in the I lot think of they used the to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so hold on. Let me really quickly. I'm almost sure. there, guys. I promise. Well, while you're saying that, I'll just also mention that you guys have a YouTube page too, Facebook, Twitter, like you mentioned, and, and dancesafe.org is, is just a great website. And I, I recently made a, a resources list on my website. So if you go to mikebrank.com, you'll see Dance Safe there at the number two position. Oh, excellent. Only arrowhead above you. Oh, I, that's, that's, you know. that's really touching. No, that's <laughs> yeah. really touching. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, Tuesday of Burning Man at 4 p.m. I'll be speaking at Palenque Norte. Or it's actually 4.30 p.m. I apologize. 4.30 yeah. p.m. What date? Uh, Tuesday, 8.27. Okay. Um, and that's going to be a group talk uh, with Rick Doblin, the executive director of MAPS, who does all the medical research, and uh, Betty, who is the executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Great. So the yeah. three of us will be speaking together. Uh, the talk is Prohibition and Post-Prohibition, How to Create a Rational Drug Policy in the 21st Century. So oh, awesome. So if you want to hear more about, about what we were talking yeah, yeah. about, go see that when you're at the burn. Um, and then Wednesday, 8.28, I will be speaking at... Uh, uh, so the large foam camp that's there every year is doing a speaker series for the first time. Uh, the camp this year is Phomogenesis, and the speaker series is Entheogenesis. Um, so I'll be speaking Wednesday, 828, from 4 to 5 p.m., um, and that's going to be a, a talk about harm reduction in the festival and burn communities and how we can sort of create a culture within those communities that uh, harm reduction exists as an intrinsic part of that community, not something that's necessarily provided by the festival right right if we can build a culture of harm reduction then it's less on the back kind of like of the a festivals. self-governing right a self, self-governing here, yeah. culture of harm reduction. very much needed yeah and so those are the two talks that are super hard confirmed and i've blocked off large chunks of time after each of them because uh, last year i had back-to-back talks and there was all these people i really wanted to talk to and i constantly had to run off to my next talk yeah um so i'm very intentionally not doing that this year so if you want to chat with me in person that's the way to do it is find me at those two talks um and i also made really awesome burning man pendants to gift out this year and if you want one that's how you got to come to my talks and all awesome afterwards well i hope to see you there maybe there's a chance i might be there and and if anyone else is going let me know i'm still in need of a ticket but we'll we'll figure that out um thank you so much mitchell gomez from dance safe it was a pleasure sir for sure yeah Yeah. great great seeing you thanks for being here peace out everybody stay safe Hey, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Hope you guys like these podcasts and enjoy them. And if you do, please spread the podcast, share it, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker, tell a friend, tell a cat, tell a mouse, tell a dog, tell an ant, tell a firefly, tell whoever you tell, share it, spread it, like it all that good stuff. If you if you really love the show, you want to go a step further, you really want to help us out, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts um, and go to patreon.com, patreon slash Mike Brank and um, patreon.com slash Mike Brank and you can donate as little as a dollar a month, two dollars a month, whatever you want. Help support the show that way as well. 
But remember, I love you guys no matter what you do. I just love that you tune in and you enjoy these podcasts. Message me. I like hearing feedback. Get in touch with me on Instagram, Mike Adelic Podcast, Mike Brank on Facebook as well. And um, thanks to our sponsors, Synchro and Hemp Bombs. If you want a discount on ketogenic and plant-based nutrition products, go to Synchro and type in the code uh, Mike Adelic at checkout to get 20% off. And they have amazing ketogenic chocolate fudge called Keto Mana that I have all the time because it's it has like no sugar and carbs in it. So it's great. And, um, and it's delicious. And if you want CBD, uh, go to hempbombs.com and get 15% off all your CBD needs, I guess. And uh, just enter the code Mike15 at checkout. But thank you once again to everybody. Thanks to Danny Barnett and Galaxia for the music, the intro and the outro. I love you all. Peace.